Welcome to Beyond the Bluff with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Well, you're going to be happy to know that I planned a joke for you and I completely forgot it and I forgot to write it down. Oh, look at God. It is a good day for James. I know. Good day for James. But maybe it'll come back <laughs> to me for next week or something. I Oh, well, we'll see what happens. We will see what happens. I will keep my fingers crossed. Yeah, let's jump right in, though, and uh, get started because we've got a lot to cover. Indeed, we do. Before we do, want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in the book of Joshua today. Um, Joshua. So before I get to, I, I guess, the things I want to make sure are discussed with Joshua, just a little bit of just a brief historical background. Um, people of Israel had come out of Egypt. They spent 40 years in the wilderness as a punishment for their faithlessness and disobedience that the older generation might die off. And now they are on the verge of crossing Jordan into the promised land by the time we get to the book of Joshua. And uh, leadership has also transitioned from Moses to Joshua, his uh, assistant that we were reading about in Deuteronomy just last week. The purpose of uh, this particular work seems to be that God is faithful to keep their word and we are to be obedient if we are to participate in God's work. Joshua was steadfast in the latter and uh, challenged his people to do the same. Um, but something I also want to make sure is named as we discuss the background to Joshua. It, it's worth noting that people don't really preach sermons from the book of Joshua a bunch because it's a, it's a pretty difficult text to deal with, primarily because of its conquest narrative and its a pretty drastic departure from the God we've gotten used to in the big story of the Bible so far, that God of the other, that liberator God, that God who gives preferential treatment to the other, uh, to the weak, to the second born, to the refugee patriarch, to the infertile wife, etc. Like this God in Joshua is, um, is closer to the war-making, conquering gods in the Enuma Elish creation narrative we talked about at the beginning of the year, and uh, that's a bit concerning. Con consequently, this text has also been used to justify settler colonialism and uh, colonizer migration. To, it's, it's been used to justify conquering, colonizing, uh, confiscating, and uh, plundering of native lands all over the world been used to justify displacement, um, dehumanization, extermination, demonization, like we're going to see prohibitions against intermarriage, commandments to exterminate entire populations of people and their animals. Uh, like that's what we're going to see in Joshua 6, actually. And it's all going to be in the name of God being on our side. So... All that to say, discomfort with uh, 
you know, those particular passages and discomfort with the book of Joshua in general, that is understandable, even though this and other conquering narratives in Joshua presume a uh, wickedness of the people that are that are conquered. Uh, this narrative actually also plays a key role in the current conflict between Israel and Palestine, uh, especially Israel's illegal settlement policy in the Palestinian West Bank that's going on right now. Uh, there's you know, multiple models used to talk about how this conquest actually went down in Joshua. Uh, one of them is that it didn't happen at all. You know, there's no significant archaeological evidence of Jericho being burned down or being walled or even being inhabited at the time of Joshua. No other historical sources are talking about a massive invasion or about the Exodus narrative for that matter. Even the reports in the text itself are contradictory, both within the book of Joshua itself and uh, in comparison to the book of the Judges. For example, in um, Joshua 10 and 11, it says that Joshua took all the land. And then we got in 13 and 23, and judges, there's a long list of unconquered territories and land that still needs to be conquered. Uh, so, you know, that's one model. And another model talks about uh, a peaceful migration, that the land was unoccupied and slowly taken over by pastoral nomads who tended sheep and goats. And still another model says that the earliest Israelites were Canaanite peasants who revolted against the oppressive taxation and exploitation by the city-states in Canaan. Um, you know, they were joined by a small group of ex-slaves that had escaped from Egypt, and these two groups developed an uh, egalitarian vision of the society based on solidarity. Um, so, you know, a couple models that can help deal with uh, with the book of Joshua. But even still, whatever model you want to explore or embrace, and even if we can show that the conquest didn't happen as written in Joshua, I do readily acknowledge that what we have in Joshua is still part of our story and uh, and we got to deal with that, namely the triumphalist, uh, militaristic and supersessionist readings of the text that have been the means of so much uh, damage and dehumanization in human history. Also, the tack of a lot of churches, the tack a lot of churches have taken today, which is to uh, straight up ignore the text or to uh, read them selectively or allegorically. And something that I personally got to wrestle with is a uh, critique of the way liberation theology typically reads the Exodus narrative. Like, uh, as long as people believe in the God, in God the Liberator in Exodus, are we going to be safe from the from God the Conqueror in Joshua? And you know, it also raises other questions. Like, is a society even possible where people delivered from oppression don't become oppressors themselves? Um, you know, for the sake of time, I'm not really interested in having that conversation today, but it is something to, uh, you know, acknowledge and put out there for anyone who may struggle with uh, reading Joshua. But anyway, uh, by the time we get to the end of Joshua, the land of Canaan is distributed to each of the 12 tribes in a need-based way as their inheritance, depending on each tribe's size. It is clear that supreme owner and giver of the land is God, and in, re in return, Israel just has to do two things, as Joshua states in his final speech in Joshua 23. They just got to observe the law of Moses, including laws prohibiting intermarriage, which, you know, another conversation, and to love God uh, and not the gods of other people. And in Joshua 24, the people promise to serve and obey God alone, to serve and obey God alone, thus renewing the uh the uh, covenant from Mount Sinai. So that's your brief overview of Joshua and also some themes that uh, we won't really get opportunity or time to, 
you know, really delve into. Uh, do you got other things you want to add by way of introduction to the book of Joshua, Derek? Yeah, I want to say that we as Latter-day Saints have had a real tough time with taking the Bible anything other than literally. There's been not, maybe fundamentalism isn't the right word, but we do not have the same rich tradition of wrestling with the biblical text as other uh, Christian denominators or our Jewish siblings. And because we have mostly had untrained leaders who are doing the best they can, they're like, well, the best thing we can do is just to, to believe it and take it literally and to take it very straightforwardly at face value, everything. And that's where the young earth creationism comes in. That's where um, the literal flood comes in. And the irony is we as restore as a as a restored church who has living prophets, we're not bound to the the face value of the Bible, right? We've we can do better than that, right? We're not stuck. So I'm not sure why, other than just convenience, we have gravitated to the literal reading is the most faithful one. And I don't have time to talk about all the implications of this, but I'm glad that you drew out that we don't have to take the, the text of, of Joshua at face value. It doesn't have to be normative or prescriptive. It mm -hmm. also doesn't have to be historical. It's most likely not historical for a number of reasons that you've said. But it is a product of a community who is wrestling perhaps with the exile and making sense of, well, why aren't we in the land? And then there's this whole rationalization of, well, God threw us out of the land because that was the part of the deal all along. And look at how... And, and so look at how Joshua plays out. When we do what the Lord wants, we're treated well. If we don't do it, then that's why we're exiled. So there's a very biased and motivated agenda behind um, a large section of this, uh, this Hebrew Bible. Would that be fair to say, I think? I think so. Yeah, so we have to read it as, yeah, this is part of a story that the ancient Israelites were telling to make sense of certain things. And in that light, maybe we can have a little bit of empathy for them or a little bit of understanding mm -hmm. as to how that happens. Mm -hmm. And I just want to go back and talk about something called the Deuteronomistic History. And this is a title that scholars have given to a large section of the Hebrew Bible that has some unifying themes and unifying, unifying theology and some even literary connections uh, and similar styles. And it's across the books of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings. And in fact, Deuteronomy looks a lot more like these other historical books than it does um, the first four books of the Torah in many ways. And so Deuteronomy looks like an introduction to these things. And then these following books from Joshua to, to First and Second Kings narrate how the suzerain-vassal covenant in Deuteronomy actually plays out. Also, so notice that the first four books of the Torah are not included, and also Ruth and First and First and Second Chronicles are not included in the Deuteronomistic history. Mm -hmm. um, these other texts have different theology, different emphasis. We'll get to that later. But here's some themes of the Deuteronomistic history. Number one is there's worship at a central sh shrine, which um, isn't named in Deuteronomy, but it ends up in Jerusalem. And number two, this is very important. The Lord isn't always on the side of the people or even on the side of their leaders. If the people do what is right, 
then God will be on their side. If the people do what is wrong, then God will not be with them. That is the, one of the main messages of Deuteronomy. It's also one of the main points that Joshua has in his farewell discourse at the end of Joshua. And this is important because, look, God will turn even on his own leaders, um, such as Moses and Aaron, who don't do the right thing, and then they get excluded from, from the promised land. So all of these things uh, need to be kept in mind when, when discussing this piece of the, the text. Similarly, uh, sort of the reverse of this, those not of Israel who do what is right will be rewarded for doing what is right. We see this with Rahab and also with the Gibeonites, which we won't have time to discuss, the Gibeonites. But God is the uh, suzerain, and anyone who does what is right gets a fair shot, no matter who they are. And anyone who doesn't do what is right, is God's going to turn against them, no matter what calling they have or what pedigree they have or what anything, right? So... Um, yeah, kings, royal officials, priests, prophets, no matter your calling, you are accountable to the covenant. And no your mm-hmm. no matter your position, like I said, God could turn against you. Now we we may mm-hmm. we're not going to have time to to decide do we agree with this or not, but we, I just want to name that that seems to be a focus, very explicit of uh, the Deuteronomistic historian. Number three, there's a humanitarian concern for the marginalized, the outsiders, and the oppressed, even in Deuteronomy and then throughout um, the Deuteronomistic history. And then fourth, it's likely a product of the exile, like I said, wrestling with making meaning out of, um, well, how does this make sense? And I don't have time to talk about that either. But maybe later on when we talk about the exile, we'll, we'll talk about that, like with Lamentations or something. Right, right. I wanted to preface this with a quote that I read this this week from a biblical scholar named J. David Stack, and he said, "All translation is colonization. All translation, Ooh. by definition, dresses up a text in clothes that aren't native to it." And I thought mm. that was a really profound way of putting it. Um, yeah, quite. And we'll get into the implications of that. Uh, when we see, and it's not just translation language to language, it's also like culture to culture, symbol to symbol. Mm -hmm. And so this Mm -hmm. portion of the text uses themes and genres and symbols and rhetoric that aren't native to us. So we have to, we have to name that. Um, Mm. Well, are we ready to get into the text? I think so. I think so. And I'm definitely going to talk about uh, this whole uh, these implications of translation by the time we get to uh, chapter 10. Mm-hmm. But I would love to just go ahead and start from the beginning of Joshua and uh, see how far we can get. Okay, cool. So, um, yeah, so... Do you have anything in chapter one? Because that's, that's where I want to start. Go ahead, start with one. All right. So this is uh, just a brief uh, general point. Um, but you know, I did want to use it to talk about some other things that are happening currently in our world, in our world. Uh, this is going to start with a conversation on Joshua chapter one, verses, uh, three through six. Now at this point, Israel's inheritance was already given to them. It was, it was God's will that they have that land and it was theirs for the taking. That didn't mean, however, that they were to, you know, just passively 
take the land, that they were to sit and do nothing and wait for the Canaanites to just up and leave. Actions of faith were required to make literal what God had already made legal. The enemies of God were going to resist, but, you know, they would fail, provided that Israel was strong and courageous, as it says in uh, these verses. But anyway, that's an example of uh, the intersection of God's power and human responsibility. God makes promises, but we are called to uh, work and obey in order to uh, secure them. In uh, Dr. King's mountaintop speech, for example, he said he already seen the promised land, the future that was supposed to exist, and he knew was coming, but also knew difficult days would follow and work would be required. But the promised land was still present. Um, now, when I read these verses this past week, um, you know, I couldn't help but think about, you know, the Buffalo shooting this past week this past week, yeah. uh, you know, a terror mm-hmm. attack deliberately targeting black people in the black community. It, it's, it's not the, it's not the first lynching of black people in recent history. And it's not even the first mass, the first mass lynching of uh, black people in recent history. And I'm no one to say it's going to be the last, but what will likely happen is little will change because laws are already being implemented to ban the teaching of any history that makes white people uncomfortable, including the notion that these events, like the Buffalo shooting, don't happen in a vacuum. The Christian urge to send thoughts and prayers without critically engaging how we've had multiple young white men committing hate crimes with guns or how we may be enabling other violent behavior toward black folk in our own congregations is a failure to embrace our promised land. Like we're not doing the work. We're not living in to the promises that we have been given right. as adoptive children of Abraham. Like, look at what God told their people to do back in Leviticus 19. God's commandments revolved around how to treat others, which was not coincidentally how to be holy. We were also told that the whole of the law was to love God with all our heart, might, mind, and soul, a natural outgrowth of which is loving our neighbor. And we can't say we love God if we don't love our neighbor. And we can't say we love our neighbor if we ain't doing the work of addressing why the murder of black souls keeps happening in this country. Like 18 is how old that boy was. We're not growing Mm -hmm. out of this stuff. The younger generations are not growing out of racism. And I'm willing to bet that a significant number of congregations Even those with black people in them did not talk about Buffalo this past Sunday or make plans to address racism in the future. Uh, You've talked about how God's timing works before, Derek, about how it's responsive to us and not wholly independent of us. This is one of those moments where we get an opportunity to sit at the intersection of God's timing and human responsibility and rise rise to the occasion to embrace God's promises of a Zion community that will not come if we don't love our neighbors enough to address why so many of us had our groceries delivered to us this past week. Like we'll see this multiple times in the book of Joshua as well. In chapter 10, for example, we don't see the intervention of God until the people march on the Amorite kings. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in verses 10 through 15 of chapter 1, God tells the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, in other words, the folks who had already received their inheritance, to help the rest of the tribes claim their land. Joshua challenged them Mm, to reject selfishness and to battle alongside their siblings so that everyone could obtain the experience of God's promise that God had provided. So I'm just in this mode of thinking and pondering how exactly do we sit at this intersection of human responsibility and God's power, God's timing, God's sovereignty, and make our promised land a reality? Because it's not going to just happen uh, with thoughts and prayers. It's not going to happen if we don't directly address it. 
And, um, you know, that, that was all I could think of while reading this particular section and about how all these other moments of God intervening or God, um, you know, coming in to help God's chosen people was only spurred by the people's actions. Even in that particular instance in chapter 10, um, Joshua had no idea what was going to happen, had no idea how God was going to intervene, just had faith that God was going to act. But that faith was demonstrated by an action, which was marching on the Amorite kings. And that is when God intervened. That is when God showed their power. And I think that's how it's going to work for us who are, you know, in this fight or trying to make these efforts that'll create a better society. We have to march on the Amorite kings. We have to make something happen. We have to demonstrate faith by moving directly on these pervasive evils of uh, white supremacy, among other things. Anyway, I'm rambling now, but... um, you know, that's that's the thing I wanted to point out in those verses. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you brought that up, um, especially because people want to say they're fighting racism. But like we've said countless times, we're not in agreement on what the definition of racism is, right? There's too mm-hmm. many people who have this colorblind, like, oh, if it's like labeling people as black is is uh the problem right we should just not mention people's right no this makes no sense and we're going to um first of all you have to name the problem and to believe black folks and believe believe folks of other races when they testify what racism is and not believe some some whitewashed definition of racism that makes people feel good and uh, we're going to get into this issue of labels and identities in uh, the the Rahab section because there's going to be some ah, people yeah. who say your most important identity is that of a child of God. <laughs> and we're going to get yep. we're I'm going to have some thoughts to say. I know I promised you that I was going to try to make this short, but this this is going to end up long. Uh, this is important. It's okay. Yeah. Are we going to end? Uh, are we ready to move on to chapter two? Yeah, by all means, by all means. This is a good time. Okay, good. So Rahab, oh, Rahab is one of my heroes. I think like Hagar, there's just some some folks throughout scripture, named women and unnamed women, who really are my heroes, along with the Syrophoenician woman. I think Rahab is another amazing hero of faith. Um, and not just to me, but as we'll see, to James and to the uh, James, the author of the Epistle of James and uh, the author of Hebrews. It will be uh, it will be manifest that, that she's a hero to them as well. I want to first name that she sits on the margins of society, literally and socially. Literally, she lived in a house in the uh, city wall of Jericho, and socially, okay. she was a sex worker. And I think being on the margins allowed her to see farther than other Canaanites. Her positionality in the wall literally allowed her to facilitate the escape of of the um, Israelite spies. So there's ways that being on the margins actually is where the real juicy stuff happens. That's why I love this story. It's not about someone at the center of the power getting stuff done. It's about Christ in a manger all over again. But let's, let's focus back on this text. So, and perhaps it was because on the margins that she was able to do more and and perceive more and dream more than others. 
Um, and she has a number of marginalized identities. She's a Canaanite, she's a woman, and she's a sex worker. I'm reminded of what the Latter-day Saint scholar and historian Laurel Thatcher Ulrich has said, well-behaved women seldom make history. Right? You've heard oh, that? Yeah. And She's a Latter-day Saint? Yes. I didn't actually know that. I've seen that on bumper stickers. I've seen it on t-shirts. I had no idea that was a Latter-day Saint yep. person. Yep. I've, uh, yeah. She's a very important uh, um well, anyway, let's get back to Rahab. Uh, another interesting thing is that she appears to function as the head of her household, right? Mm. She does not appear to be married. Uh, she does mention a father and mother, and she does mention brothers, but she seems to function as the head of her household from what we can tell. Um she is, I, interestingly enough, named explicitly by Matthew in Matthew 1.5 as one of the ancestors of Jesus. And I am so grateful for Matthew oh, yeah. for, 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 naming, uh, for naming Rahab. Um, and I think Matthew does that to justify sort of, well, what's going on with Mary, right? Here you have hmm. uh, an unusual circumstance with Mary, and here you have an unusual circumstance with Jesus here on the margins, and sort of justifying and grafting in Mary and Jesus onto the story of Rahab. Yeah. So at yeah. great risk, Rahab risks her own life to help the spies, to help the Israelite spies. And so let's just, I don't think I need to summarize the story because I'm just assuming that people go better, better read this. But one thing we need to look at is that um, she uh, takes the initiative here. At first, some people might be uh, tempted to read it as that the Israelites are colonizing her. And there's a piece to that that's true, but there's also a piece where she takes the initiative. She's the one that makes the decisions. Like the spies didn't tell her what to do. She's the one that brought in the spies. She's the one that decided to hide them. She's the one that decided to lie for them. She's the one that decided to tell them what to do to how to to let them escape. She's the one that initiated the covenant uh, with the with the spies to say, "Hey, when you take over Jericho, uh, don't kill me or my household." Right? And she is the one that is moving and showing initiative and ingenuity and creativity and some of her business skills. I just love her. I love Rahab. Amazing. By the way, her name uh, means like broad or wide, which mm. there may be a sexual pun in that, but it probably comes from a, um, a, a name deriving from something like may God, or, or I'm sorry, may, may Baal open the womb or something like that. That is probably what her ah. name would have meant, something something of that nature. Okay. So I just find it so amazing that she's able to um, show initiative and creativity and heroic faith. And it's heroic faith of the type that the Israelites should have had. That is why the author of Joshua <laughs> included this. And we'll see the contrast yeah. in uh, chapter 7 with what happens when the Israelites don't do what's right. Mm. Um, and she's on par with Abraham, I think. Um, she's on par with Abraham. Let me give you some, some of the uh, some of the uh, 
the contrast here is that in in the three ways that she's marginalized, she's a woman, she's a sex worker, and she's a non-Israelite. In all three of those ways, she's a contrast to Abraham, who was a wealthy landowning member of God's covenant people. So here's the uh, two of the New Testament witnesses about Rahab. Hebrews eleven thirty one says, "By faith, Rahab the sex worker escaped the destruction of the disobedient." because she welcomed the spies in peace. And perhaps, it's not clear in the text, but perhaps welcoming the spies may have had a component of sexual hospitality. That would be quite transgressive. Um, it mm. would be consistent with the, with the time period. And James 2.25 says, And similarly, was not Rahab the sex worker also justified by her works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by a different way? So this case, uh, we end up getting a, a, a situation of poetic justice here where someone from the outsider, someone sees farther than the Israelites do, and it's just so beautiful. And it perhaps is that, like I said, her position as a marginalized person. It could be that in her mind she said, well, look, I'm a sex worker, so I'm going to be able to have an excuse for why I have strange men at my place all night. Like, literally, I just think it is so beautiful how she's able to use what other people would think of as, as transgressive in a way that serves God. And as mm. we will see, transgressive sexuality brings the Messiah, as we mm -hmm. see in uh, Matthew's genealogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, we actually spoke about that at the beginning of our study of the Hebrew Bible, that we'd see a lot of compl complicated and uh, interesting genealogies. Uh, we talked about seeing a preference for, you know, the second or the last born sons and several mm -hmm. women in the ancestry of Jesus with, you know, unquestionable or marginalized circumstances. We, we, we met Tamar already, yep. you know, mm -hmm. we're meeting Rahab now who is named as a prostitute in this story. And, you know, she's named like her title of sex worker is named multiple times uh, throughout this story and, uh, you know, and in the New Testament right. as well. And uh, anytime you see repetition in the Bible, that is that is emphasis in the Bible. And perhaps what was intended, I, I don't know if you got any ideas on this, but perhaps what was intended right. to be emphasized here is that no matter our circumstances or histories, God can do great things through us if, you know, we turn to them. And, uh, you know, I, I just found that emphasis curious because I also went to those scriptures in James and in Matthew. And I was just like, why do they keep like at first I was a little bugged by it. Like, why do they keep mentioning that she's a sex worker or, you know, right. also I especially because that bearing. Yeah, especially because there's no, it's not like a number of Rahabs and they need to identify which one. We only have one Rahab right. in the whole Bible. Right. Um, well, I should say there's a Rahab in Isaiah, but that's spelt differently in Hebrew. Um, All right. That's. Rahav in Isaiah and Rahav in um, in Joshua here, so it's it's completely different okay. in Hebrew, which is why people should, if they have the time, resources, and interest, should learn the biblical languages. But let me get back to something really important about labels, because here's something that I did not fully put together until I read it again. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I've always known, but it's rare that I like. Ooh, here's something I never really thought about. When those two spies went back to the Israelite army, they had a major, major coordination meeting. They literally had to tell the entire Israelite army 
do not attack the house with the scarlet thread in it. They had to, they had to go back and tell everyone because otherwise the covenant wouldn't have worked. Everyone of the Israelites had to be on board with, we're going to protect that person. We're going to protect that family. We need to mark out which, which house it is that has the scarlet thread, and everyone in the entire army, thousands of them, needed to know this. And I never thought about the logistics of coordinating that until this week. But they hmm. did it. They did it because they thought it was important. And we're going to get back to this issue of labels, because this scarlet thread was a good example of a label, right? There's going to be people out here that t- say that labels are satanic, and that labels are going to divide you or distract you from your identity as a child of God, or that labels are um, inconvenient, right? But these labels are inconvenient only when it's not a straight white male. The straight white man can label themselves all that they want, and there's no problem with that, right? So there we see the problem isn't the label. The problem is they actually don't like that. Uh, um, There's something they don't like about that which is different. So it's not the label that's the problem. There's some other problem. But let's go back to the scarlet thread. The scarlet thread was an example of a label. It was a life-saving label. Now, there are folks who wear medical identification bracelets. You know what I'm talking about? The ones, there's like little metal bracelets that say I'm a diabetic or or I'm allergic to particular medication. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So that's another example of a life-saving label. And it's a label that if someone is unconscious or unresponsive and paramedics or the EMTs come, that is literally, from what I've heard, the second thing they look for. The first thing they do is they check the airway, the breathing, and the circulation. Then the second thing they check for is they do a sweep of the the neck and the, the wrists and the ankles to see if there are any medical bracelets because that will change the treatment plan, right? That will change so many things to know well, what's what's going on here. So... What really bugs me is the phrase, no, your most important identity is a child of God. Now, why is that a problem? Well, the problem is that it's a true statement used in service of a falsehood. It's kind of like, it functions like um, all lives matter, which technically is true, right? We have to admit it's technically true. But the way it functions is to silence people, to distract from the problem, to deny the problem, and to uh, preserve the status quo. Mm-hmm. And I think a similar thing is happens if I say, look, I'm gay. Yeah, being gay is not the most important thing about me. And for me, being gay is not more important than my identity as a, as a disciple of Christ. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's part of my discipleship of Christ, but it's not an alternative to it. Not, I'm not going to say it's more important. But when people right. come up and say, no, your most important identity is a child of God— what they're doing, the only thing, that's why I love that question, how does it function? One of the most important mm-hmm. theological questions I've taught people is ask, how does this function? That Not whether it's true, but how does it function? Because yeah, it's true that I'm a child of God, but how does it function? When people say it that way, it functions to put the LGBT person in their place, to shut down conversation, to distract from the discrimination that's ongoing, and to detract from the accountability that needs to be there. And uh, it's completely opposite. You'll hear people quote Galatians 3.28 to this same uh, same effect of <laughs> that in yes, Christ sir. there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither 
slave nor free, uh, slave nor free, male nor female. But right. in context, let's look at how it functioned. How did it function? I, I want to like go up to these people and say, I want you to tell me what the main point of each chapter of Galatians is, one through six. Tell me what is going on in Galatians, because what you'll realize is Paul is not quoting that uh, that um, that statement in order to silence the Gentiles and remove their concern from the conversation. No, he is quoting it to include the Gentiles. And not to just include the Gentiles on Jewish terms, but to include the Gentiles on their own terms, without circumcision, without obedience to the laws of Moses. He's saying, look, yeah, there's neither Jew nor Greek in Christ, and that's why we're going to include the Gentiles. And that's why we're going to give them what they need that's narrowly tailored to what they're doing. And without that label, you wouldn't be able to do that. Just like without the label that says, I'm a diabetic, you wouldn't be able to give that person the right treatment. Mm-hmm. For all those who say, oh, child of God is your most important label. What if your bracelet said, I'm a child of God? That's not going to help the paramedics. <laughs> the paramedics right. are going to go up to this person who's dying. They need to know important medical history about this person. And they're, all their bracelet says is, I'm a child of God. That's not going to help, okay? So there's going to be times when we need to emphasize my identity as a queer person. And if you don't like that, you need to take it up with the author of Joshua. You need to take it up with Paul, who named these identities. You need to take it up with Jesus, who, in Luke 10, with the Samaritan, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh named the Samaritan. He labels, right? Oh, Jesus would never label. I've had someone say that. Jesus would never label, label people by their ethnicity. He loves all people uh, the same. No, he literally, uh, <laughs> he literally labeled okay. it, the Samaritan as a Samaritan. And right. when asking the lawyer who did, who was the one who um, was the neighbor to the man who had been uh, assaulted, it was the lawyer who couldn't bear to name that it was a, a cursed and hate, detested Samaritan. He just said, it's the one who showed mercy because he couldn't mm-hmm. label. Anyway, so that's my my thing about this, uh, this child of God. So when people say, you're a child of God first, they are trying to hide their indifference to suffering behind a pretense of innocence. Mm. And this is not okay. Now, I can see why it looks good. You're going to have people with, with a weird definition of racism or a weird definition of this whole colorblind thing of, we're just going to treat all people the same, right? <laughs> racism is treating people differently based on the color of their skin, and racism is just treating people the same. But they're completely masking what happens under, quote, treating them the same. Physicians literally have a different treatment plan for different patients. That is Part of why you go to medical school for years and years is to know what to do in different circumstances. They literally treat their patients differently because of labels. Accommodation for disability is similar without labels or without identifying someone's access needs. uh, We won't be able to give them the accommodations. We are limiting access. And same thing with, with parents. Like good parents don't treat all their kids the same. They will give all their kids what they need individually. Um, but they're not going to like give the same. Yeah. And then same with teachers. 
teachers are going to give students different accommodations. They're going to give them different supports or different scaffolding or even different assignments because they're on they're on line upon line on different places. They're going to need different things. And so it bugs me is here's where the racists can score these cheap points by equivocating about the words treating people the same. There's people who criticize your course because of this, of this, right? They have this um, faulty understanding of racism that it, oh, racism is just treating people differently and like labeling people and then and then treating them differently. Um, but you know what? Let's go back to Paul. At the Galatian model, Paul literally treats the Gentiles differently. There is a completely different plan of salvation for the Gentiles, not to discriminate against them, but to include them on their own terms mm-hmm. authentically mm-hmm. in a larger plan of salvation. And so, um, like I said, Galatians 3.28 does not function as uh, to silence the Gentiles, but to include them in the community. So right. this statement is, you're a child of God can function, like I said, as the all lives mattered of Latter-day Saint culture. <laughs> um, it's a truth that gets weaponized in the service of a falsehood, and it's a way of, of distracting people's attention from what actually uh, happens. You, do you know how many people who said, who said uh, I tell them I'm gay, and they're like, no, you're a child of God. <laughs> like, ew. <laughs> Or like, you're like this, Derek. Literally, just on Twitter, the like, literally within the last hours, somebody like I posed the question: uh, Did y'all talk about Buffalo in your ward last week? And are there black people in your ward? And then someone literally replied, "Why would that be brought up at church?" And sure, there oh. are some minorities in our ward, but they were there to worship and not to get into some sort of political discussions. Stupid political discussions, what they said. Ew. But I was like, way to miss the point. I mean, I didn't say that, but I was like. In my inner dialogue, I was like, way to miss the point. And yeah, there are way and, too many people like that. It's important. Church. It's inherent in our baptismal covenant to mourn with those who mourn. Yes. And we can't mourn yes. with those who mourn without identifying those who mourn. Right. We need to right. label. I mean, I'm not going to label them, but we need to be open to people who who declare their identity to us as important. We need to be open to people who 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 do that and we can't comfort those who stand in need of comfort without identifying those who stand in need of comfort saying we're all children of god is i don't even think it's it's that much of a stretch to say we're all children of god is is essentially all lives matter it's essentially hmm. the same thing now that i think it about it it can function that way what definitely functions it, functions it definitely the functions way, that right? way right and maybe for different for different identities it functions differently but but it functions there's some overlap in the thinking of like, oh, let's just erase the thing and and focus on what we have in common and and racism will magically go away. Well, no, that has never worked. Um, But my baptismal covenant literally requires that I label people based on their circumstances and then give them what they need based on that label. So who's really Mm -hmm. denying the image of God? It's not Mm. the people Mm. who who, like me, are actually pointing out the diversity of humanity and treating people according to what the cir- circumstances demand. The ones who are denying the image of God, the ones who, who are denying me that I'm a child of God, are the ones who deny me a full human life. They're the ones. I'm not the one that's distracting from my identity as a child of God. They are. They're denying because they refuse to treat me like a full child of God. 
Like male and female are alike unto God, but at this time male and female are not alike unto Salt Lake City. Salt Lake is arbitrarily and artificially limiting people by labeling them male and female. Whether you're checked off male or female in the church's database limits the callings you can have. It limits the ordinances you can perform. It limits um, it limits, it limits who, your voice. who you can marry. It limits what mm. decision-making power you have. And it's completely arbitrary. And you know what? Male and female aren't alike unto Salt Lake when they treat Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother differently. Well... Well, so let's well. let's tie this back into Rahab and just say I I think the more people chew on Ray on the Rahab's story, the more profound it will be, and I hope that people will be like the Israelites and say, um, we've got to all rally around this person. We've got to every one of us needs to protect that one. And I think in our wards, if there's a marginalized person, everyone needs to get the memo. No matter, yeah, the logistics will be hard, but if the Israelites could tell thousands of their soldiers not to harm the people uh, with the scarlet thread in the window, then we can we can tell people no racism in this ward, no sexism in this ward, no homophobia in this ward, no ableism in this ward, and not just say it, but do the work to know how to eliminate that and know how to confront it mm -hmm. when it happens. Anyway, uh, the last thing I want to say is the the contrast with uh, what happens in, uh, in, in uh, Joshua 7. So right now I'm just talking about Rahab 2, where we've got the covenant. They actually take over Jericho and fulfill their end of the covenant in Joshua 6. And right after that is Joshua 7, where we get the sin of Achan. And you see that, um, contrary to what you think, uh, or not you, but contrary to what some people think, it isn't that, that God is unconditionally against the Canaanites. If the Canaanites want to be on the Lord's team, they're welcome. Look at Rahab, right? So it's not about their identity as Canaanites. It's about who's part of the covenant community, and Rahab decided to, and anyone theoretically could be part of that community, and anyone, no matter what your heritage is, no matter what your, what your descent and pedigree is, no matter what your calling is, you could step outside the covenant and get smushed by God um, as we see with Achan. So that's all I had to say about right. Rahab, and I'm surprised that I said it so quickly. I'm proud of you. You did a great job, and you spoke a lot of truth. So job well done, my friend. Job well done. I think I'll pick up right here on the conversation of uh, Achan, where uh, basically what happens in this chapter is after the victory at Jericho, there's like this brief episode where Joshua commands the Israelites to not take any valuables from uh, the city because that stuff was set apart for the Lord's treasury. But uh, an Israelite named Achan did take stuff. And then the Lord's anger fell on all the Israelites, all of them kind of raising the question, why did all the Israelites have to suffer for the mistake of just one person? And why did verse 11 say that Israel had sinned and broke the covenant? Um, so yeah, I had that question, but uh, one possible explanation is that, this is a reminder of the communal nature of the people of God. Um, I, I take care to speak with us and our pronouns when I speak of the church's problems. Like when I talk about the church's homophobia, racism, or misogyny, I speak of all of it as my own because even if I don't condone it, I have chosen to be 
you know, a right. part of this community. So I'm saying our homophobia, our racism, our misogyny. And, you know, I'm also not going to pretend like I don't have to work elements of that stuff out of myself. Like I'm definitely not perfect in that regard as a cis uh, straight male, um, among other things. But anyway, if one person identified makes a mistake, it reflects poorly on all of us, or it can set us all back. Kind of like being on a, a sports team of some kind, or like a football team losing yards because one teammate went off sides. That's kind of what I see happening here. And perhaps that's how the Israelites mm -hmm. were to understand themselves and function as a team, as a community, as a body. As Paul says, if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice. This is one reason why I think accountability is such a big deal uh, to us, why we talk about it so often, Derek, one person, one leader, or one lay member can set us all back, you know, with their actions. A small section of people can set us all back. We we saw this in the Doctrine and Covenants when the redemption of Zion, among other things, was delayed as a consequence of the wickedness of some of the saints, even though many others were willing to obediently follow God's commands and embrace uh, the law of consecration. There's something to just be said here of... Um, the power of one or the power of a small few. Like if a small few do good, it can uh, it can uplift and edify the whole body. If a, if one or a small few uh, do ill, that can not just reflect poorly on us, but can also do a lot of damage to us. Like in the case of uh, Achan, uh, 36 innocent people died. And, uh, you know, his punishment was severe as a result of uh, his sin. Like it fell on all the Israelites and... I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so hard on our leaders when it comes to their homophobia or their racism or their, you know, enforcement of patriarchy, because not only does that reflect poorly on all of us, but that harms a great deal of people. And um, it's important, like you see what Joshua does after he finds out that somebody among him uh, was responsible for this sin. Like there's a whole elaborate process by clan, by tribe, by family, that, by mm -hmm. which they like find everybody. It's a very serious thing. But I uh, think that is why I'm so, um, you know, why I tend to be so hard on leaders in particular, because it is that small group of people that are making a significant number of significant decisions that ultimately have a drastic impact on um, people's worship and ministry experience within our church and sometimes without it. So, uh, yeah. It, it is the, it's, it's the power of one. It's one member suffering. All members are suffering with it. If one person is doing ill, it can really affect the rest of us. Like one person's actions can really be the reason that we have to wander 40 years in the, in the, in the wilderness. Like we saw that back in uh, Exodus and Leviticus. We're seeing that here in Joshua. Um, just something worth considering. Yeah, and that gets back into like the humor, human fingerprints in the text. And if you read, and I haven't actually done this work as carefully as others, others, but scholars have gone in and like noticed sort of differences and contradictions and like wrinkles and and ways that that doesn't all fit together. Uh, and this leads us to realize that maybe several sources were stitched together, or maybe someone with an alternative view. Uh, had their view presented, or maybe you know, so we shouldn't take it everything so and so um, at face value. And it, this gets it back into some of the issues around violence. Like there's issues of that say, well, wipe out all the Canaanites, but then it says, well, don't intermarry with them. 
Or then it says, like in Deuteronomy 7.2, don't make covenants with the Canaanites, which is very interesting because the spies literally did that with Rahab. They made a covenant with Rahab, a Canaanite, to save her life. So there's there's exceptions in the text. There's like gray areas. There's like complexity and nuance here. Um, uh, and there's there's contradictions as to how quickly they take the land and how much of it they take and and it, and what the time frame, right? So so we just need to to be open to the wrestle with that. And I think. Um, even I'm open to the to the wrestle with like, well, what's going on with this punishing the, the whole thing? I would have tried to make the case. Well, we don't have two witnesses to Achan's sin, so we can't punish him. I would have I would have <laughs> said, hey, let's let's uh, have a single standard of justice. And even if a voice from heaven tells you that Achan is guilty, whoops, we don't have two witnesses, right? I would have fi- found a loophole. I would have like wrestled with the text, and I love wrestling with the text and trying to argue back with it because that's what i think a good um parent or a good teacher wants i would i wish that my students would argue back with me on content like say no i don't think that 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 is right and then we both try to find a proof right because that is critical engagement like i don't have like as much engagement as there could be uh as a teacher anyway so I did want to say one thing real quick about um, about this, and it's about the question of like, oh, look, Joshua blanketly and woodenly teaches that the Lord is on the side of of the the Israelites, and that's actually not true because of the nature of the covenant. Like, if you don't do your thing, God will turn against you. And I love this mm-hmm. um, this commander of the Lord's armies. Apparently, an angel comes visit Joshua, and this is in Joshua five verses thirteen and fourteen. And Joshua asks this person, are you with us? Or are you with our enemies? And ah, yeah. this commander says, neither. Low in Hebrew or um, no, but it mo- so the, the NRSV and the NIV translated as neither. I find that interesting. Like, how could you not be on the side of Joshua? But then I'm realizing, look, God is 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 God. And the terms of the covenant, are such that if you do what the Lord says, then you'll be, then the Lord's on your side. But if you're not, then the Lord's not going to be on your side, which should shake the boots of every church leader, right? They cannot rest on, whoops, I'm an apostle. Whoops, I'm a prophet. I'm, I'm all set. Like Moses wasn't all set. Peter wasn't all set. David wasn't all set. Like no one except Christ was all set. And so... Is the Lord on the side of the leaders of the church? Well, yes and no. And that's the scary thing. And that's why we need accountability. That's why we need the, the spirit. And uh, that's all I wanted to say about Joshua 5. What did you have to say about Joshua? Are we ready for Joshua 10? Well, sorry, real quick. Did you say who the angel announced themselves as on the side of? Like he says neither, but he also, didn't he say who he's with? Uh, let me just get the exact wording here in. All right. In uh, in Alter's translation, so it okay. says, uh, and it, this is thirteen and fourteen. And it happened when Joshua was at Jericho that he raised his eyes and saw, and look, a man was standing before him, his sword unsheathed in his hand. And Joshua went toward him and said to him, "Are you ours, or our foes?" And he said, 
No, for I am the commander of the Lord's army. Now I have come. Mm. Right? So it's not about, it's more about like, are you on the Lord's side rather than is the yeah. Lord on your side, I think is kind of right. the point. Yeah. And I like just missed that part. And I wanted to make sure it was clear that like, just because Joshua was there and announced that there was those two sides doesn't mean that he was necessarily commander of the Lord's army. That dude who showed up was. And I just thought that was a very curious episode to insert in there, almost as if to say, I mean, exactly what you said. The answer is yes and no. And that's kind of the scary part. At any moment, as we saw in verse seven, I could do something or somebody in my camp could do something that immediately nullifies everything or, you know, gets us on the bad side of the Lord. And that would be, that could be the end of everything. But, uh, yeah, yeah I just found that very interesting. And this anyway. Is- Oh yeah. Real quick. I don't know if that's that's a miracle to make it real quick. But <laughs> this I'm not portraying all of these things as the final truth, right? This text is or is holding this out here uh and the conditional nature of the covenant as something to think about and something to wrestle with. There are unconditional covenants in scripture as well. There are unconditional aspects to God's grace and love, and we'll have to get to that another week. But I just want to name that pieces of the uh, the responsibility that you get are conditioned on what we're ready for. And that is a, an act of love in a way that uh, God is, is not going to give us some calling that we can't do or that God isn't going to give us a degree of glory that we're not responsible for. There's just ways of, of I'm not, I'm, I will never say that God's love is conditional because if you look at the way the Hebrew Bible as a whole seems to wrestle with this, even when God is punishing Israel, it's an act of love as a father punishes a child. And there's, you know, there's problematic things with that too, right? Mm-hmm. But it's framed as ultimately um, for the good of Israel. And we can have a longer conversation as to whether violence and devastation and, 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 and slavery and uh, deportation yeah. is that love, right? But, but right, right. fortunately, I'm going to say we don't have time to talk about that because I don't have a short <laughs> answer to that. But I just want to name that it's okay to wrestle with this text and just be right. real with it. God's real with us. We can be real with God. Mm-hmm. And Joshua is a troublesome text. Like, there's a lot yeah. going on in here. And same with judges next times. week. But oops. <laughs> oh, judges. <laughs> Lord help us. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm ready to go on to chapter 10 if that's cool with you. Yeah, let's do 10. All right. So um, there's only a couple of verses I actually wanted to address in here um, because it actually relates back to what you were talking about, Derek, regarding translation, colonization, and language, the translation of not just language but culture. And uh, you'll see what I mean in a second. There's a piece of language in here I want to use to talk a little bit you know, about our tendency toward biblical literalism in Christianity. I've heard a few scholars talk about it, but the first person to actually put me on to the impact of the literalism we've seen in uh, Jacob, sorry, Joshua 10 versus, uh, I guess it would be 12 through 13. Um, The first Mm -hmm. person to put me on to it was uh, Matthew Vines, author of God and the Gay Christian. And in verses 12 and 13 in Joshua, They talk about the sun and the moon stopping in the sky to elongate the day so that Joshua could, you know, finish what he wanted to finish. Right. And that's obviously not how things work. I mean, obviously, that's how it looked to them. Um, But in terms of stopping the sun in the sky or stopping the moon, it 
you know, that's not how things work. But this was a sticking point to early Christians when, uh, you know, Galileo came about and when the telescope was invented. They were committed to an idea that the earth was the center of the universe and that the sun and the moon revolved around it. Therefore, they called Galileo a heretic because Galileo used new information made available uh, by the telescope to demonstrate otherwise. And what these Christians should have acknowledged is that the people back then in Joshua's time, they understood things a certain way and their language reflected that understanding. With less information about how the world worked, of course they were going to they thought the earth was the center of the universe. And of course they thought the sun literally stopped in the sky and the moon literally stopped in the sky. And it wasn't the earth that was moving. Now here we are as Bible believing Christians in the 21st century, we can read this same passage and not take issue with it. And why is that? That's because we understand that the biblical authors were operating with less information than what we got and that the Bible often used figurative language to make accommodations to our understanding. In other words, the biblical authors, they didn't really seek to take opinions on uh, matters of astronomy, but rather to communicate effectively. That was their primary objective was communicating effectively. Mm -hmm. But still, that's a millennium and a half worth of teaching that the earth is the center of the universe. And to embrace Galileo's findings wouldn't just contradict all that time teaching something understood as fact, but it would also do something really dangerous in the Christian church back then, which is to call into question what else the church might have gotten wrong. And similar questions trouble Christians today when it comes to uh, same-sex relationships. That's where Matthew Vines took this conversation. Uh, no one that no one thought that God blessed same-sex relationships uh, marriages and to change our thought processes on that based on the experiences of uh, LGB folks, that's difficult. Like, why shouldn't we just mm -hmm. defer to the wisdom of our predecessors when that is something that they all agreed on? And then this is what uh, Matthew Vines went on to say. And this is from uh, God and the Gay Christian. Uh, he says, quote, Christians did not change their minds about the solar system because they lost respect for their Christian forebears or for the authority of scripture. They changed their minds because they were confronted with evidence their their predecessors had never considered, the telescope didn't close. Sorry, close quote. So uh, the telescope didn't lead Christians to uh, um, reject scripture, but it led them to clarify their under clarify their understanding of scripture. So in considering our advances in um, in, in science and uh, also the fruits of queer dispossession, like the higher rates of attempted self-harm, the higher rates of drug use, the higher rates of depression, and of course the alienation from the church and other destructive consequences, should we not reconsider how we currently read our scriptures when it comes to our queer siblings? Like they didn't even know gay people existed when the Bible was written, let alone gay marriage. Should we not then reconsider our readings just as we reconsider Joshua's words in this text? Like this is just one example of many mm -hmm. uh, where we see that our literal reading of the text can cause problems and that we see that a failure to reconsider the scriptures written in their context as a word on target written to a particular people at a particular time to address a particular issue among a particular culture, how that needs to be considered if we are going to be good readers of the text, responsible readers of the text. Um, as I quoted last week, I think it was last week or the week before, but I said, a reading of the biblical text without consideration of context is a pretext. And uh, I don't think we see that any more clearly, at least in this modern day and age, 
than we do with our weaponization of the text against our uh, LGBTQ siblings. So I wanted to talk about this primarily as a way of talking about, uh, you know, what you had brought up earlier with re- regarding translation, not just the language, but also the culture and the particularity of the times. Yeah, I wanted to say three things real quick about this. Number one is, not only did Galileo sort of violate the, the, the literal text of the Bible, or at least as the way it was interpreted, he also violated people's gut feeling and experience about the way the world works, right? Because the thing is, when you like sit on the earth, we don't feel it moving. Like what Galileo was saying was so counterintuitive. And it wasn't Galileo the first to say it, Copernicus as well. But what, what they were saying like did not fit people's just everyday experience of the world. Like when we look at it, we we don't feel the earth moving and we see this mm-hmm. sun and, and moon moving, right? And I think a very similar thing is happening with queer people. Like people aren't going just to the scripture. They're also going to their gut. And in their gut, they think that male and female belong together, something like that. And so we're, we're, we're trying to say something that's counterintuitive. It's counter to what their gut says. Now, their gut is formed by prejudice and tradition and a whole bunch of other cultural mess that in other cultures and other times, they might not have that prejudice, right? So I just want to name that that's part of what was so hard for, for Copernicus and Galileo was not just they were going against scripture, but they were going against a scripture that was fortified by people's prejudice due to their experience or what they thought was their experience. But their experience was mm. wrong because people had no right to sit on the earth and say, I can feel it not moving, therefore I'm right. And people can feel in their heart that that gay is icky, but I'm like, get over it, okay? Just get over it. <laughs> The second thing I want to say is, um, here is an example of Joshua holding God accountable to God's promises. This is a theme that I find throughout Scripture. Now, if you look, what happens if you go back, so the sun stops. um, uh, What's interesting is Joshua didn't exactly ask the Lord. He didn't say, could you pretty please maybe do this? He said, then verses verse 12 then did joshua speak to the lord on the day the lord gave the amorites over to the israelites and he said in the sight of israel right publicly accountable o sun in gibeon halt and the moon in agilon valley and the sun halted and the moon stood still till the nation wreaked vengeance on its foes so he just straight up told the lord what to do and that's what it goes on to say it says is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stood still in the middle of the heavens and did not hasten to set for a whole day. And there was nothing like that day before it or after it in the Lord's heeding the voice of a man. For the Lord did battle for Israel. I think it's so amazing that like the Lord, you know, ask and you shall receive type of a thing. But what's interesting is, I don't think the text makes this clear, but if you go back several verses to verse eight here's what it says and the lord said to joshua do not fear them for i have given them into your hand no man of them will stand up before you so joshua had a promise from the lord 
that they would prevail and uh, Joshua needed the sun to stay up so that they could finish the battle and prevail over their enemies. And like, whoops, sun stayed up all night. So I love this. It's the same heroic faith that we get in Honey, the circle drawer that we talked about. Was it last week or the week before? I can't remember. Last week. Yeah, last week. And it's the same heroic faith in the Syrophoenician woman. It's the same heroic faith in me. It's the same heroic faith that was in the people who stepped in in uh, Joshua 1 into the into the into the uh, Jordan River, right? They had to step into the J- Jordan River before it split, and I think that took great heroic faith. But it's a mm-hmm. her- heroic faith that's based on the character of God, and I feel this so much uh, recently as a queer member of the church that I have to take a step in faith, not knowing exactly how it's going to happen. Right, as a hmm. queer member who joined the church shortly after the policy change in November of 2015. I joined the church in December. I had to have strength and resilience that was heroic. And so I wish people would give me more more patience and more grace. Um, and in order for me to make it, I need to be sure that the fire that burns within me is brighter and more fervent than the fire that rages around me. Because there's this big fire raging around me. But there's something within me that is burning and cannot be stopped. And I'm definitely going to step in continue to step into the water before it it clears. We do not have justice in the church for LGBTQ folks yet, but there will be. I'm going to hold everyone accountable to it, and I'm stepping into the water knowing that in due time it will prevail according to my side. And speaking of prevailing, I just wanted to name real quick in Joshua 17 that the cho- tribe of Joseph bargains with Joshua. They said, you know, we have too many too many people we need more room in the allotment and then joshua was able to wiggle it a little bit and give them more uh more more room and joshua says this is seventeen fifteen. if you are a numerous people go up to the forest and clear it for yourself there in the land of the parasite and the rephaim for the high country of ephraim is too cramped for you so um i think it's it's amazing how um, and then in in verse eighteen, they uh, uh they get the high country and it's in the forest and they're able to clear it, and its far reaches will be yours. I think it's it's so interesting how 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 flexible God is and how flexible the Lord's prophets are when they know their place. And I just want to remind everyone, no matter where they are on their journey to um to tap into that tap into that fire within you that knows the lord and knows um knows these things and i and i wish that people would um would always carry that hope that's why knowing the scriptures is so powerful i don't think i would last i don't think i would be able to last very long in the church if i didn't know the scriptures as well as i do i hate to to brag but i probably don't need to brag about that <laughs> But but I really think that that my day to day existence would not be possible without knowing the scriptures. Yeah, probably not. Well, I'm done. Surprise. <laughs> Lovely. I believe I'm done as well. 
So let's go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, before we do, though, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about L- about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com, also on Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS, and you can find us also on Facebook, and um, yeah. You can find me throughout the week trying to prepare jokes for James. <laughs> well, better luck next time. Yeah, thanks. Is there uh, anything else that we... Oh, yeah. Real quick, got to give a, a special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts, uh, Stephanie March and Angela Carter for being a big help with the social media stuff, and, uh, of course, the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, including Stephanie Peterson, Mary Gavilanes, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. These outlines also include the Faithful Feminist episodes from the same week, so you can have a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me from the Margin Study Helps. Links to the outlines are going to be in the uh, show notes, as well as the drop-down menu on our website, uh, beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Same goes for the transcripts. Is there anything else we got to put the people on to, Derek? I don't think so, but Pride Month is coming up, so be prepared mm. for uh, to do something. Yeah. Yes. Be prepared to share with us how you're celebrating as well. We definitely look forward. Uh, definitely look forward to that. Uh, if there's nothing else, uh, then thank you for joining us till we meet again next week. Yep, till we need, meet again next week. Bye-bye.